So uh, it's Lent, and as we prepare our hearts to celebrate uh, the new life that Jesus offers, uh, we've been taking a time to reflect on the revitalization we believe that God is bringing to our lives and to the lives of those around us. And we've been hitting on uh, kind of four themes of revitalization, uh, saturating in the story of Jesus, the idea that we soak in the story of Jesus till we become formed to be improvisational actors of the Jesus way. Uh, you know, drink in Jesus till we sweat him and we have the stank of Jesus all over us. And the other theme we've been really uh, embracing is this idea that we're acceptance and intimacy, that God loves us and everything we do flows from the overflow of a personal experience of God's love. Not that we're trying to do virtuous things to be worthy of God's love, but virtue spills out as we are filled with God's love. And the idea that we are empowered to love anyone. I used to be a person that didn't really think I had any enemies, but as this year I started to think of people that caused my loved ones to suffer or on a personal level or a macro level, uh, those are enemies. Uh, most of us have lists and groupings of people we think cause suffering to expand in this world. And if we are to grow in love, the best way to grow in love is learn to love our enemies and everything else comes together. So that's been a big personal theme of mine and I think it's something God's speaking to greater churches. He wants us to, to receive so much of his love that we have plenty left for our enemies. And that culminates in what we're talking today and we're gonna kind of circle, circle around these themes for a while, but today's theme is empathy and action, the idea that God has made us kingdom artists, kingdom entrepreneurs, kingdom agitators, and kingdom activists. And underlying all that is the empathy that Christ give us, gives us to uh, feel the sufferings of those who suffer and to love those who suffer and have compassion on them. So today in our Revitalized series, talk about God revitalizing our empathy and our action. So let me say a quick prayer. Uh, Father God, I just ask that your spirit would be with all of us who are tuning in and watching this, God, and those separated geographically, we'd be united by your spirit to come together and love our neighbors. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So uh, I wanna talk about an incident uh, happened to Jesus around the, kind of around the Passover time prior to uh, you know, being crucified and then rising again. So prior to Easter, uh, and he was in Jerusalem prior to the Passover, and every religious and political stripe element along the ideological spectrum of Israel was manifested there. There were extremists who held to a creed of violence. There were compromised politicians. There were uh, the occupying soldiers of the enemy of the Roman Empire. You had violent radicals, you had the poor who didn't think that there was any hope for them, you had social outcasts, and you had the religious elite that liked to look down on everyone, all crammed into the city of Jerusalem. There, were, uh, there ended up being violent protests and uh, that culminated in uh, people uh, kind of uh, gathering to set siege around Pilate's residence to demand the murder of Jesus. Uh, 
but we're before that, and we have almost a, a quiet, uh, intimate moment with Jesus here. And this is Jesus, who's in Jerusalem, and we know about his kind of symbolic turning over the temp, uh, tables in the temple, which I'm going to be talking about actually on Easter. I'm really excited about that. But I wanted to talk about one of his uh, poignant responses here in Luke 19. Uh, and just going to read a part of Luke 19. It says this. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you, hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other, you because you did not know the time. of your visitation. So he drew near the city, began, he wept over it, saying, and he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, which was um, about 20-some years ahead, AD 70. Uh, actually, this happened exactly. Uh, they, uh, Emperor Titus held siege around Jerusalem, and all these different kind of political groups, hopes, and ideologies ranging from uh, zealots to sellouts were surrounded together, trapped in Jerusalem together. Titus uh, paid his soldiers in plunder. He set fire to the city, the gold of the temple, uh, uh, burnt and went between the stones, and they tore the stones apart to get at the gold, to get their pay. So not one stone was on another. A pretty accurate prophecy. But Jesus said this, when we read this, I didn't read, do this when I read it, but when Jesus said this, he was crying. He was weeping. He, you know, we're talking tears and snot, friends. He was just, he saw every shade of brokenness, every crooked agenda, every way of missing the plot of God's mercy. He didn't hate these people. He loved them. There were so many different kinds of enemies to God's kingdom representative, enemy agendas. You know, embracing violence, that puts you against God. Embracing political power at the expense of the poor, that sets you against God. Embracing personal safety without caring for the needs of the poor, that sets us against God. And Jesus saw all these people set against the heart of God. And he wept for them because he had empathy for them. He saw them as like sheep without a shepherd. It, uh, another point, he says, I wish I was like uh, a mother hen that could take these little chicks under my wings and keep them safe. Jesus, it goes to a maternal metaphor to express his power and his mercy, that he wished he was like a mother hen cradling her chicks. And that is how tough and strong Jesus is, is that he can even imagine himself having the maternal pain of a protective mother. That's the empathy of Christ. So uh, if we are animated with the spirit of Jesus, we're going to be on a trajectory of progressively increasing in empathy. That means we can progressively increase in our manifestation of empathy in a world that is 
bound to desensitize us to suffering. I mean, how, how do you desensitize people? Through exposure over and over again. The more you time someone sees someone shot, the more inured they get to someone being shot. And with all the trauma that we are aware of globally and in our cities and in our Columbus, Ohio, the natural inertia might be come to inured to human suffering and hunker down us for no more. But where Christ challenges us is when we see the brokenness of our city, when we meditate on the murder of Casey Goodson by uh, the police, the murder of Andre Hill by the police, instead of it just, we become used to it, we can actually become more emotionally invested every time egregious evil injustice takes place. That's not the natural trajectory of the world. But through the Spirit of Christ, we can be like Jesus, who when he looked over Jerusalem, he wept. And then the story of Easter is he did something about it through his sacrificial love. Jesus did not just weep over suffering. He engaged suffering and unleashed a hope that we carry on to this day to the completion when God sets things to rights. If we're animated with the true Spirit of Christ, empathy how do we cultivate it? That we relationally cultivate empathy through times of silence, solitude, prayer, interaction with scripture, any way that we can cultivate and experience this intimacy with Jesus. Uh, we cultivate empathy by building relationships with people we would tend to judge. We cultivate empathy by learning the trauma stories or the neglect stories of the people who we see to do evil. You know, behind every uh, unkind, uh, destructive person, there's a trauma or a neglect story or some kind of brain damage or soul damage. You know, uh, unhealed people wound others. Unhealed people oftentimes wound others. You know, there's the idea that you become what you don't forgive. And that's one thing is uh, in a couple specific areas of where I've been prone to judge people, I've been really uh, meditating on the trauma that I know or imagine that those folks have went through. And I pray for God's intervention and restoration of their souls. I, I uh, imagine, use my imagination to uh, uh, kind of try to forensically or imaginatively put together someone's trauma story and then pray for God to set them uh, to rights and fortify them and heal them and bring them to repentance. And I don't have enough emotional energy to pray for them and hate them at the same time. But I can't just say, don't hate, don't hate. The way you don't hate is you crowd out hate with actively loving. And praying for people in the midst of anger, while you're praying good things for them, there's a second, there's a couple split moments there where your brains are not given into hatred. And eventually, if you pry open that crack a little, the hatred begins to leak out and the love goes out too, but the love keeps coming in as well. There's other ways we cultivate empathy as well, artistically uh, cultivating empathy through the arts. Uh, the story of Cambodia uh, was a statistic to me. That, or it was just a brief news story. That was until the church I grew up with welcomed uh, dozens of Cambodian refugee families. And the youth group I was in was majority 
dark-skinned Cambodian folks in, in an Upper Arlington youth group, Jeff Cannell, was the minority. How's that? I relationally got to know their journey and their suffering journey. And then uh, going over to Cambodia, building relationship there eventually in my adult life, more empathy. But another way that I've grown my empathy is watching in re book, watching movies and reading books. You know, First They Killed My Father, excellent uh, film on Netflix. Uh, the Killing Fields, which came out in the 80s. There's several documentaries. There's one that actually uses handmade puppets to retell the story. It, it sounds weird, but it, it built my empathy. So engaging in, in literature, the arts and art created by Khmer people has even increased my empathy because arts get into my soul in a way, another way. So through the relationships, through the arts, and then through imagination. One way, uh, I always, whenever I hear someone's story, I make a movie of their story in my head. And then I imagine myself living life from that person's perspective while asking Jesus to give me uh, mercy and understanding for that person. And uh, those ways that I, I'm on this empathy development journey. Now, I don't think empathy is how we manipulate people to change. I don't think if I empathize with someone, they're going to change. Or the way I lead the world is influencing people through empathy. I believe empathy transforms my soul in such a way that my leadership is less apt to do damage. But empathy is so deep at the source code. Empathy is not a method. Empathy is our soul. All right? Um, because I think a lot of people get burned out because they think when they empathize with those that are suffering or empathize with their enemies, that people will change. And I used to be a part of this crowd that believed if I only understand people, they'll want to be my friend, they'll like me, and they'll change. And that's a fool's dream. But empathy, while not being a way to manipulate people to change, empathy is to give us the soul and the heart of Jesus, which is a win unto itself. So I wanted to go back to kind of a story that has been a real important story to me, going back to uh, fall of 1991. And this is a story that stuck with me for years, and I was reminded of it by a kind of surprise visit to my house uh, from my cousin Andrew. Uh, my cousin Andrew was in town uh, for uh, just some uh, memorial we had for my grandfather who passed away at 101 and I kind of uh, had the honor of leading that memorial, which is kind of a double gut punch to lose my dad and grandpa in immediate succession, but it was so good to be with my family. And my cousin Andrew flew in from Berlin Andrew uh, is an artist, he's a painter and a sculptor, and he builds like these amazing installations that involve LEDs and metal sculpture and other things. He designs like immersive experiences that uh, kind of turn your mind to a different perspective and kind of set you askew a little bit to have this experience of his work in Berlin. So he's part of the Berlin art scene, which is world renowned and world famous used to be Berlin was famous for the Berlin Wall. You had the communist side, repression, censorship, extreme persecution of Christians. I've heard a lot of stories from my friend Matthias Beyer, whose father was a Christian pastor, and Karl Marxstadt, 
which is now called Chemnitz, but Karl Markstadt in East Germany, he was actually one of these little kids that streamed over into West Berlin when the Berlin Wall fell in 89. I used to have a little piece of the Berlin Wall. But anyway, there was this grand uh, unification of uh, uh, Berlin, uh, Berlin, and I know Helmut Kohl was in charge, and all these magnificent things were happening. But what happened immediately after that is artists started streaming in. There was one half of Berlin that was uh, artistically and creatively and communicatively suffocated be under the oppressive regime of the communists. And when that was brought to an end, that vacuum built an inertia that created, like it was almost like a tractor beam pulling in artists. And the more artists that came, the more creativity came to the point where uh, 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 an older band, uh, U2, who was considered more of a younger band back in uh, uh, 1989-90 were kind of experiencing this creative desert in their careers. They'd done a concert movie, toured forever, and almost broke up. They were just done. They thought they'd give it one more chance, and they heard about the kind of zeitgeist of Berlin and the creativity of Berlin. So they flew into Berlin, set up camp in a studio, and started soaking in the creative vibe of the city, and then created like totally reinvented themselves as a band, uh, recorded this brilliant album called Octoon Baby that kind of launched them into another decade of great work. But I was a, uh, I read every interview I could find with them and it was an interview in Rolling Stone magazine where they talked about the spirit of Berlin and the spirit that comes when oppression ends. To the point, we're still, that inertia, 1989, that's 11, 32 years, there's still art being created there that is round across the world. 32 years in this arts movement that my own cousin now, little Andrew, who's a big guy, renowned artist, is in Berlin creating because it's still there. Well, long before Andrew moved to Berlin, when we were playing in Central Vineyard, I kept having this thought. I kept bring, coming back to that 1991 interview I read with Bono where he talked about arts creativity and entrepreneurship following the end of oppression. And I thought of artists and entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs are artists who create places for people to work within every uh, business or bakery or function place or becomes like this living artistic installation populated by people creating something new. Now, sometimes it's beautiful art and beautiful installation and beautiful companies. Sometimes they're a horror, horror movies of companies doing evil in the world. But there's an entrepreneurship that came to Berlin and there's artists that came to Berlin. And that story uh, kind of really connected with me to the story that happened. It's another Easter story. It's at the crucifixion of Christ, there was an earthquake in the veil of the temple that symbolized the separation between God and people that veil was torn. And it seemed like this, you know, this judgment on the temple, which was actually a symbol that the barrier between God and people is gone. That veil has been torn. And then later confirmed at the Feast of Pentecost, the spirit goes forward is not only are we not separated towards God, but his love is pursuing us, is stalking us, is running after us. His art is creating these immersive experiences where we can encounter God's mercy and over and over and over receive his invitation to enter his love and enter his kingdom. So 
this uh, creativity of the Berlin Wall falling down, well, far more significant was when a God that was mostly separated from one people group became a God who was pursuing being united with all peoples, with no veil, who wasn't even like this God that you had to climb towards, but a God who climbs towards us through the person of Jesus. So with the tearing of the veil, if we actually embrace the true kingdom story of Jesus, we get to tap into this greater human narrative, this greater zeitgeist, this greatest spirit of creativity and entrepreneurship to engage suffering and omnish hope. And one uh, early kind of slogan of our church was kingdom artists and kingdom entrepreneurs. And the idea at this point was every home group kind of adopted a way to creatively engage people. We had a group of people that would go every week of several groups once a week. Well, uh, in a month, a different group every week would go and play music and do entertainment and build relationship with the folks at Brighton Place, which was kind of a convalescent nursing home for people in extreme poverty. We had another group that went to a, another nursing home that was in a really difficult, uh, impoverished area of town of people that pretty much never got visitors and did the same thing. Uh, we had a, a group that kind of helped with homeless folks that were gathered around the Indianola corridor. And then we had Carl Betcher and the Hex had a group and they uh, decided to buy a house uh, in North Linden and rehab it and uh, begin housing homeless folks that fall through the cracks of the system. And this has been, uh, through many iterations, that, you know, different projects, some projects are for a time, some projects are ongoing. Well, One Good Home is the remaining project from that initial vision that's still happening and getting ready to expand from the kingdom artistry and entrepreneurship of this. And uh, I feel that as we, this theme of revitalize, Thing that came up this week when I was uh, talking with some of our volunteers and our staff is one thing God wants to revitalize is to bring back this vision of kingdom artists and kingdom entrepreneurs. I believe like cousin Andrew coming to my house with this amazing cheesecake he baked for us because the canals we celebrate family by baking food because I come from generations and generations of carby bakers. You know, canalis comes from cannoli, cinnamon, Greek bakeries, donuts. Anyway, and Andrew kept that tradition, but he also, his presence inspired me. When I was on his site looking at his installations, I felt like God was speaking to me that he wanted to revitalize this vision that I'd almost forgotten about. And what a perfect time for it. So uh, what's going on with One Good Home is right now One Good Home specifically focuses on immigrants that through policy ambiguity, chaotic policy, or unjust policy, uh, may even be people who think it's unfair to care for this group of homeless people because it's taking away resources they don't deserve. Whatever, there's a lot of reasons why certain people uh, from certain countries or some people who don't have, I mean, we have one individual that didn't have a passport for any country. He couldn't go back to his home country and he didn't have papers here. He was uh, stateless. That's a significant number of refugees are refugees because no one wants them. And this person um, was uh, not welcome back in Vietnam and not welcome here, didn't have papers. And they found home and uh, flourishing at One Good Home. 
Currently we have one house. Uh, a few folks have been in and out of it. It's a men's house. And uh, recently one of, uh, this one gentleman who was suffering from extreme health issues got to know peace, love, and friendship during the final days of his life. And, you know, uh, Daniel, essentially Daniel Heck and his family became this person's extended family and relational caregiver. And this person got to, when he died, he did not die alone. He did not die homeless. He did not die stateless. His state was he was welcomed into the kingdom of God with God's kingdom people. His home was one good home. And I just thought, you know, as being with my father, as he was dying, just how important it is for people, even when they're dying, to know they're loved and have stability. And through One Good Home, this man had it. Now, One Good Home is this home group that dwindled to a very few people and very few funds, and there's a small team of super faithful people that do it. You know, we have Carol, who's got oodles of experience in social work that volunteers some time. We have Daniel, we have other people that kind of fill in the gaps just giving their loaves and fishes and God multiplies it. Well, the beautiful thing about One Good Home, it's easy to reproduce. It's so simple. And our church does simple well. Uh, we need it simple. Uh, and we embraced another model of ministry many years ago, and that was uh, relational-based orphan care, non-institutional orphan care, that didn't stick people into a foster system uh, that was dangerous, but created uh, families adopting one another into households of joy and peace in Asia's hope to the point where now Central Vineyard, uh, where we kind of were able to uh, be the initial beta test and the initial artists and entrepreneurs that formed the first uh, uh, kind of a family-based orphan care home to now 20 plus in Cambodia to now a student center in Battambam, where we not only care for our students as they are in university now, they were slated to be trafficked. Now they're in university or university graduates reaching out to their fellow students in a student center supported by Central Vineyard, which within the next year, we're gonna have some, there's gonna be maybe some surprises regarding the student center, but those details are still coming together. And, but, all these churches that had more people, more resources, better preachers, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, millions of expert musicians that sound like they were sessions players and that, you know, everything. They would see what we've done at our church. And listen, there's some people that are very have been frustrated at Central Vineyard. It's like, man, can't we just do this with more excellence or that with more excellence? I said, I suppose we could, we're, we're doing our best. Well, God help us. But people were able to imitate us because it's easy to imitate simplicity. And people look at me and imitate a simpleton. But what I'm saying is it went viral and it's a kingdom story. And I, one thing that's helped me not lose my faith in Jesus is to realize how many Christians in America just he have to hear about this suffering and are ready to open their pocketbooks and shake out their cash. I know we hear a lot of bad actors who in the name of Jesus advocate violence and storm the Capitol and are talking about, you know, beating up a congressman while they wear a Jesus cross on their shirt. That's not Jesus. Jesus is emptying your pocketbooks for orphans. That's Jesus. Well, 
now uh, Daniel has cast a vision or cast uh, this idea he had that we've been approached by the organizations, uh, some uh, professional organizations that intervene with the homeless and a couple in one particular more underground organization that helps uh, some people in dire crisis that need help. And we're so part, it's not quite an underground railroad, but it's something like that, as well as a public organization. And these folks are together saying, you know, can you guys do more of this? This really seems to work. This is a gap. Now it's just one little house, one little piddly house in the, now London that we bought and basically a Christmas offering and a few families gave some money and we bought a house. Well, we have a window of opportunity now. We have established relationships of like-minded people and we have relationships in the community where I believe and Daniel believes and Carl believes and Adrian and Katie believe that this is an opportunity where we might begin to invite people to do what we're doing or join us in what we're doing. Whether uh, a loose network or a tight network, somehow to working together in our community to address the gaps in housing in Columbus to engage suffering. A way that we as the body of Christ can say, we stand, we stand with immigrants. The fatherless, the widow, and the alien, the stranger, they were the heartbeat of Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit grows our empathy, they're our heartbeat too. So heartbeat, heartbeat, take some of our money, take our relationship, take some of our time, let's do life together. So to that effort, this email, Daniel, at centralvineyard.com, D-A-N-I-E-L at centralvineyard.com. Write it down. If you wanna be a part of a Zoom call and a town hall meeting where we go through a relational discerning process, instead of, we're not just gonna come up with this plan and say everyone jump on board. We're gonna assess, is this, just a, is this just Jeff had too much Red Bull today and he's excited about this? Or is this the Holy Spirit that not only has this spoken to our, our leadership team, but speaking to other people in the church. We're, we're not necessarily gonna move fast. We're not thinking grandiose. We just wanna be faithful to what might be at the horizon for this, to be, once again, embrace this vision of kingdom artists and kingdom entrepreneurs. I envision that as we start gathering personally together, I think there's gonna be some groups that evolve, maybe split, maybe new groups come through the surface, like shoots of green grass coming through the snow that these groups will begin to form as groups that all have a vision to participate in one of these artistic and entrepreneurial outreaches to suffering. So Daniel at centralvineyard.com, one good home. Uh, there is a window of opportunity. Uh, housing is still affordable in areas we believe we could get some houses, but within the city, house prices are set to skyrocket. They've already gone up. Uh, we have a limited window to be able to create uh, some housing opportunities in the area of town where there's bus service, there's uh, social care agencies, and there's resources for people to get on their feet. You know, if people are pressed out of the city for house, affordable housing, they're also pressed out of services and jobs. So we have kind of this mission critical opportunity. So I'm not as God is bringing us in this revitalization journey, uh, empathy and action. I wanna say a couple final things. I also believe uh, 
that I meditated on these ideas that I was thinking of artists, entrepreneurs, agitators, and activists. I was a part of a, a lot of the protests uh, downtown uh, following uh, the brutal murder of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and, uh, you know, you look up the Wikipedia article and find out how many dozens and tens, twenties, and hundreds of people who unarmed uh, black folks have been killed by people in authority and power. This, uh, what I experienced down there was the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm sure there were some ne'er-do-wells, opportunistic folks uh, doing some things, but what I, you know, I didn't see these bad things. I saw the Spirit of God falling on countless people. It was like being at church, being at those protests. And I know a lot of people, armchair people watching their news network of choice have developed their uh, perspectives. And I said, well, I trust my visceral experience day in and day out being down at a protest more than you hearing a pundit talk about it. And it was beautiful. But we have recently, uh, the whole world, BBC World Service talking about murders of our unarmed black men in Columbus by Columbus Police and Franklin County Police. Casey Goodson Jr., murder. Andre Hill, murder. And I'll, I'm using this word murder because if, I suspect if this was uh, a young soccer mom in Upper Arlington getting out of, or Worthington, two places I grew up. I grew up in Upper Arlington, Worthington, so I'm not casting a spurge, I'm saying, but if it was, Soccer mom uh, getting out of the minivan, going to the door, and without warning, cops come over and uh, shoot her seven times in the back. We would call it murder. But when it comes to Casey Gooden Jr., some people say, well, we just don't know enough. I said, well, uh, the coroners know enough. The autopsy knows enough. What if we could imagine one thing growing empathy is I keep reminding myself, I love my kids more than anyone in the whole world. But I remind myself that every child in the world is every bit as intrinsically priceless as my kids. A child that gets killed in so-called collateral uh, damage in Afghanistan is just as valuable as Ian or Kathleen. A child uh, that is uh, suffering uh, cartel-induced violence in El Salvador, whose parents are trying to escape to America to give their little girl good life, is just as important as my daughter getting the academic assistance she needs in high school. It's, they're just as important. So I often imagine, one way I have empathy is I imagine my children going through what other kids go through. And I think of this as we encounter this injustice, injustice, and I think of Jesus weeping. So quickly, people are to plead ignorance, uh, plead, uh, find an excuse not to think about it when Jesus is just crying. I feel like the tears of Jesus are often interrupted by white explainers. And I, I listen, I don't feel an ounce of white guilt, but I feel uh, responsibility. Not I'm responsible for doing something, but I'm responsible to do something. And that's an exciting responsibility. That's not as much a burden as it's Jesus saying, do you want to share in my work? And joining with the suffering by embracing suffering. 
And the term agitator was used a lot uh, prior to the civil rights movement and stuff. Anyone that would kind of address injustice specifically to uh, African-American individuals affected by Jim Crow laws, they were called agitators. And you've, if you've watched any of the movies, you've probably heard that word agitator. And I want to appropriate, culturally appropriate the term agitator. Agitation is what a washer does when it takes muddy, filthy clothes and with detergent poured in, the agitator turns around and the water and sub get in and lift the stain, sanctifying the clothing. Agitation is the process of causing twisting and turning in discomfort till the stain of sin is removed. And so along with kingdom artists, kingdom entrepreneurs, I believe God has called us to be kingdom agitators and kingdom activists. Let's take the term agitator, wear it with pride, because if you have a washing machine, you have a good example of an agitator. Let God be that. So final note on empathy. As we develop empathy, we don't need to fear the economy changing in such a way that it doesn't prioritize us. We don't need to fear changes in our nation or in government like we do. The only thing we need to fear is God. But what we don't fear is that God being ashamed of us. What we don't fear is God striking us. We fear missing finding God. The fear of God is fearing missing Jesus. Jesus is staring us through the eyes of those who suffer. He's staring us through immigrants at the border. He's staring us through the homeless. He's staring at us through the opioid addict. He's staring at us through the lonely. He's staring us from the abuse victim who's been withheld judgment. He's staring at us at the high school student that was groomed by her, through her high school students been groomed by her chemistry teacher and groped and abused with no justice. He's staring at us through all who suffer. Matthew, the one of the most scary references to judgment in the scripture is Matthew 25, 37. It says that then the righteousness runs will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, Lord, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And Matthew 25 spends some time in the passage. It's horrifying and scary. It talks about weeping and gnashing in teeth and fire, the sanctifying fire of God's purifying fire for uh, eternity, meaning Ionian, an age of burning purification. That fire is talked about in the context of we need to be purified if we don't see Jesus in the least, the last, and the lost. So the fear of God, it's not fearing the fire. It's fearing missing Jesus, looking through the eyes of those who suffer to the point where we need to be sanctified and have that evil burned away by that fire. So let's be God-fearers, meaning we fear missing him. I think of when Jesus uh, ditched his parents to go study the temple as a kid in Jerusalem. Everyone's freaking out. Like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And they're frantically combing the city looking for Jesus. Well, I wonder, we're frantically combing the city looking for Jesus. And he's not at the temple. He's not at the church. We're looking for Jesus. And he's those who suffer. 
when we revitalize, when we form these new groups and uh, uh, connective environments, when we investigate this opportunity with one good home, maybe we'll get to see more Jesus. So meditate on that.